0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello and welcome to Little Gold
2: Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
1: It's such an honor to present this next award.
0: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to...
2: And the Oscar
0: goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me.
1: I'm the
3: king of the world. There's a mistake.
1: Moonlight, you guys won best picture.
2: I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. With Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us once again, our colleague, Hilary Busis. Hello. Uh, Hilary, thank you for coming back to join us. You as a Pennsylvania native, I expect you to take the day off to honor Mayor of Easttown's exit from our from our lives. But I'm glad that you took the time to join us anyway.
0: Oh well, thank you. I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't say that Mayor of Easttown takes place in Eastern Pennsylvania, and I'm from Western Pennsylvania, and it's a little offensive, honestly, that you would complain us <laughs> like that. Uh, we are we are a Sheets neighborhood, not a Wawa, and this is this is very serious stuff. Hillary and of Westtown is coming to HBO next year to right all of these wrongs. <laughs>
2: Oh, that's my contribution. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we're going to talk a little bit about Mary Town because, of course, we are. Everyone's talking about Mary Town, Easttown. Um, and we're going to have an Oscar flashback, our second one. Hillary is joining us to talk about Quiz Show. Um, and then in the end of the episode, we have two interviews. It's Emmy season. Uh, Joanna talked to Zasha Mamet about her role on The Flight Attendant. And then I talked to Lena Waithe, who uh, both co-wrote and stars on the new season of Master of None, which you might have heard is a very big departure from what you've seen before. Um, but first, we've got a little bit of news and new movies to talk about and the first big one which broke before the holiday weekend that I might have erased all of our brains is that the Oscar date moved again because they love nothing more than changing when the Oscars happen. Um, the Oscars will be in late March next year, March 27th, but they're not going to expand the eligibility window, which was kind of almost the bigger change this past year. The movies have to open uh, between, what, March 1st and December 31st of this year. Uh, The Oscars have been in late March before. As I tweeted, uh, that's when the Titanic Oscars were, which kind of, to me, makes them the right time to have the Oscars. (laughs) Um, But, you know, this comes, you know, 2020 Oscars were in early February, which was an effort to make the season shorter and then also made it so that the Oscars were not a super spreader event, so a real um, win-win there. Um, How do we feel about the later Oscars? And do we feel like it's necessary to, as we get this year, somewhat back on track?
4: My hope is that it means that the Oscar party will be warmer. (laughs) (laughs) If we have an Oscar party and I'm... Richard always thinking
2: about the really universally applied parts (laughs) of this process.
4: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I I don't know that... I just think that gap is so long, you know, from the start of the new year to like... So, you know, you're still talking about movies from months ago. Like, it's better when it's mid-February because there's still kind of that energy, people are still watching the movies. I'll be curious to see how that plays out. Obviously, it was delayed this year for, you know, valid reasons. But next Mm -hmm. year, I'm not sure what the I'm not sure what that will accomplish.
0: I mean, I agree with you, Richard, although I do think that in a year uh, where movies that are competing for awards are actually all kind of released in a block in the fall, as will hopefully happen again this year. I think that we'll feel less fatigued by a long award season because it won't feel quite so stretched out, Um, you know, if the film festivals kind of happen sort of on schedule, if stuff is being released in the fall, like during traditional prestige movie season. I don't think it'll necessarily be, again, like we have like a 14 month long award season, which I agree is way too long.
2: Yeah. So it's, you know, we've got the Oscars happening fairly late, but it's not like having Juice in the Black Messiah, United States versus Billy Holiday, um, you know, whatever. Some of those like really late breaking February releases, like maybe the absence of those will make it feel less eternal, is what you're saying, Hillary?
0: I guess so. Although actually, since you reminded me that those movies came out in February, then it was like really fast that they were <laughs> that normal people could see them, and then suddenly they were getting nominated for Oscars like the next week. So yeah, ah.
3: yeah. I kind I think I think without those. Like early 2022 releases, we're just going to be talking about yeah December movie. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> um, perhaps there's a good reason for this, but I I fail to see it at this moment. So,
2: and the other interesting factor that they announced is that, and I guess probably to be expected, is that the you know the flexibility about a theatrical release is going to uh, continue to be in place, and the the rules about it are a little bit complicated. It has to open in theaters in some places and or have been intended for theatrical release, you you know, the the studios have a way to kind of work around that and make sure that they're eligible. Um, But they also signal that they might uh, change some of these uh, qualifications for future years so that even post-pandemic, you can open day and date on HBO Max and in theaters or open first on Netflix and still qualify. Um, And that could be a really big change for how the Oscars operate. But, you know, it's possible we need to get further past the pandemic to really know how those will affect everything permanently. Um, Okay, while we're on the topic of movies, um, we are anticipating In the Heights, which is opening next week, um, but there were two movies that opened in theaters this weekend. We talked about Cruella and A Quiet Place Part 2 last week in some detail, um, but they both made money, and A Quiet Place Part 2 made a good bit of money, um, which to me feels feels like really great news, and I'm sure there are... Some hidden costs to it, and it's possible it won't make any money next weekend, and it's all over. But I feel better about that. People want to actually go back to movie theaters, and I have in many, many months. Do you guys see it as nothing but good news as well?
4: I'll tell you this: uh, I was home visiting my parents over the mor- the holiday weekend, and we- it was rainy and horrible weather on the East Coast. Uh, and so we decided to go see a movie, and we went to go see Dream Horse because I was like, "That'll be empty." <laughs> it wasn't empty. People were going to Dream Horse. There were a lot of people there, obviously, to see the other big movies, Quiet Place Part Two, Cruella. But um, the movie theater was. This is in you know downtown Providence, at a big shopping mall movie theater. Um, it was packed. Not packed. It was crowded, though. Like it. It. It was. I, I, it felt kind of normal, which was really exciting. And I think that the box office numbers from this weekend kind of bear that out.
0: Richard, I don't know anything about Dream Horse, but I'm imagining an all horse production of Dreamgirls. No. Mm-hmm.
4: So that's that's exactly right. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's your
3: dream horse. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the musical we all deserve this year. Um, I mean, watch out, Steven Spielberg.
4: <laughs> Tony Collette plays the Eddie Murphy role.
3: <laughs> no, I am. Um, I heard from like anecdotally from so many people who went to see Quiet Place uh, too over the weekend, and it's so funny to have like a. We're surprised, quiet place to made money conversation. After we had a we're surprised, quiet place made money conversation. Even though, <laughs> of course, there's like a lot of other extenuating circumstances, but it's like, yeah, I mean, it, and I kind of think it's the perfect, I mean, we talked about Cruella, but like, I kind of think that Quiet Place is the perfect kind of movie because it really is a movie you need to see in a theater with other people experiencing it with you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that, my memory of, I haven't seen the second one yet, but my memory of watching the first one is just sort of like, you know, this is true of so many horror movies and, and thriller movies, something like that, but Quiet Place, of course, because of its quirk which is the lack of audio in so many places you need you need the the crowd silence or or various screams to like help ramp up that tension so i think you it's need kind to hear other ideal. people
2: trying to be quiet yeah, so. yeah
3: it's kind of an ideal uh film for that scenario so for for all of us sort of creeping back into the theaters so there you go
2: um, well, we'll talk about In the Heights more next week, um, which obviously we're all anticipating to some degree. But I do, like, I feel even more optimistic that people will go see it. Like, musicals are not the kind of box office sell usually that, like, a, a genre horror movie, like A Quiet Place is. But, you know, it can't just be us theater nerds who, like, want to go see a musical on a big screen, right?
4: I think there will be, yeah, I think there will be more, a broader <laughs> audience base than theater nerds. Um, I think it's also, which my review and a lot of the other reviews about In the Heights were just like, it it feels like a kind of welcome back to the world. Um, Quiet Place Part 2, a post-apocalyptic thing about, <laughs> you know, uh, the last few people alive, maybe. Um, that does not have that same spirit. So I, I hope... And I think that in, in the Heights will be very, like, word of mouthy Um, mm-hmm. which I think especially now when people are, you know, well, should I go? Kind of hemming and hawing about, you know, having a friend or someone say, you have to go see this. Like, that will help. And I think that will happen... Uh, in in a lot of cases within the heights because it, it is infectious in that way could I I, I, I I if while we're on the topic of box office i wanted to draw our attention to china uh where an interesting thing happened with fast 9 uh the ninth film in the fast and furious franchise or main franchise saga um, please it, <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> dropped 85% in its second weekend
5: wow uh, which is
4: precipitous and is on track to earn about at least $100 million less than the last two Fast and Furious movies in China. Um, that might be because John Cena made a, mm. depending on how you look at it, faux pub, or he called Taiwan an independent nation and the people of China were you know upset. And so he had to issue an apology video. Um, or it might be bad word of mouth uh, because there are bad reviews for the film in China. It's social media kind of rankings are low. But it's, it's just kind of an interesting thing because China is back at full theater capacity, all that. Um, and, this, and this film is really underperforming. Uh, and the report that I read about this from the Hollywood Reporter was comparing it to a, a, a movie from back in February called High Mom. That is a comedy that made $825 million in China. Oh <laughs> and it's just like, so that's like, that's like a mega, 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 mega blockbuster that like, I probably, a lot of people over here have not heard of, you know. Um, so it's just always interesting to follow the, those numbers because it's such a robust movie-going uh, country. Uh, and that Fast 9 has apparently been tepidly received uh, might not bode well for it here. Mm. Or, or not, I don't know.
3: I don't know how often those things are related. Or, or I'll just say, like, sometimes I think... Um, I've I've tracked this mostly with Marvel films. That like sometimes a Marvel film might not hit there and still be like a massive hit here. So it's it's kind of hard to know.
0: Yeah, and definitely here, I think Fast Nine is coming out at a time when like people are ready to. I think people are starting to feel ready to go back to movie theaters. I think by the time it's out, it's going to be like kind of the only game in town, and we'll be like able to take advantage of a lot of people who like have not yet seen a movie and this is going to be their first movie. I mean, this is just you know speculation, but that does kind of seem plausible to me at least, and I could see it doing much better here than the, like, China numbers would suggest. Did China receive
3: the Vin Diesel movie telling people to go back to the movies? Like, did that If <laughs> no, They didn't get that, then, yeah. you know...
0: If they haven't been told, then they might not know. If you <laughs> don't hear it from Vin Diesel's mouth, it's not it's not
2: real. It's not
4: whatever real. the answer, I do think we need to find a way to watch Hi, Mom, because
0: uh, clearly
4: probably going to be one of the highest-grossing movies this year, so... <laughs>
0: I, I assume it's H I, not H I G H.
4: Oh, I wish it was the latter. No, it's the <laughs> it's H I, yes.
0: Because i I could see that being a movie that hits in the US.
4: It's about a woman whose mother dies and then she goes back in time to nineteen eighty one and becomes her mother's best friend to help steer her toward a better life.
0: Oh man, I feel yeah. like I read I would watch a, like a middle grade novel with that premise yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. like in nineteen ninety-eight. Oh, uh, she sets her mother up with a
2: different husband which by back to the future rules would mean that she wouldn't exist i mean tree i'm reading the wikipedia summary right now you know that's watch a really, movie.
0: that's a really selfless act <laughs> someone so like uh,
2: myself out of existence if you are a listener and you have seen the movie high mom please weigh in and let us know if we should see it um, well, to close out movies, I switch back to TV briefly. It is Emmy season after all. Um, if you want to know a lot about Mayor of Easttown, obviously you can listen to the Still Watching podcast where Joanna and Richard have done a terrific job uh, breaking down the theories around the show, but also I think paying attention to the emotional story that it was telling, which if you have seen the finale, you uh, will realize was even uh, more important all along. Um, so maybe we, we can save the, the details of uh Mayor of town there. But I just wanted to note that it was a, an HBO Sunday night phenomenon, the likes of which it feels like we see really rarely. And the undoing was that to some extent, and then everyone was so furious at the finale. And Mare of Easttown, uh is like the landing, which is something that we almost don't expect these days. Um, we'll talk about its Emmy prospects. I think it's going to be strong in a lot of areas. But are you guys just as happy as I am to see, like, the show that we're all talking about be really good the
3: whole way through? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and something that like the series creator said on the Still Watching podcast when we were talking about it was he was like I had the ideas for the characters but until I figured out a really emotionally satisfying ending I didn't even start writing it because he's like I know what happens to people when they give you an unsatisfying ending <laughs> <laughs> they get pilloried and I wasn't gonna have that happen their to me. heads he's like, are
2: on a pike at HBO yeah.
3: I see them every and day he, <laughs> and he was like you know he it, I talked to him before the finale aired he's like I'm still not sure we did it but like that's that was our hope that we did and like what Richard and I were saying I mean. I I think it depends what you were looking for going into the finale and you know I got um I got a text from an uh unnamed VF colleague not maybe not the one you th- might be thinking of right now Hillary who was like you know I, I understand that the emotional aspect of the finale should be the thing that I am more interested in um but I was more interested in, <laughs> in the mystery conclusion and like I think something that Richard and I discussed in the penultimate like in the penultimate episode discussion was like what we were looking for was an um, emotional landing that worked for mm-hmm. us. Uh, what we were looking for was some great stuff from Julian Nicholson, who we both flagged from the beginning as an actress that we like, we love and we wanted to see her get to do really great thing. And she was second build on the show from the start. So we knew that like, she was going to get to do something great. And I think she did. So like that, all that worked for me. So yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I I had a blast with this show, and I, I want to thank Hillary and some of our other uh, Pennsylvania uh, <laughs> residents for 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 hyping the show in the first place because it's really what got us into covering it so closely. So
4: I, I think the show, you know, from a sort of HBO perspective, went about as well as it could have. You know, it was critically beloved. It was. A ratings hit, you know, in in HBO terms, we're talking about, you know, two million viewers across platforms, which is, you know, not big network numbers, but good for premium cable. It's got all this Emmy buzz. It just everything coalesced. There was a good ending. And I think it really made a case for the week to week rollout of a show. We were just talking about this with Franklin Leonard uh, about the Underground Railroad and Amazon's decision to drop all episodes at once, which I kind of think is a a mistake um, for a show like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I just it, it really like at this time when HBO's future is not necessarily looking dark, but like is in question with this merger with Discovery and all that stuff. Like, *Mayor of Easttown really reaffirmed it yet again as like the go-to Sunday night appointment television place. It, it and and I think that it was really needed right now, and I and I think it's it's good for them, it's good for Kate Winslet, it's good for us.
0: And it inspired yeah. the best uh, SNL sketch of the season, I would say. Um, I don't know if everybody here has seen it or if you're listening, uh, but please look up Murder murder Dirters. Um, <laughs> it's really funny. I, I highly recommend. And everybody is doing their best ridiculous uh, Delco accents.
2: Um, what Rod Inglesby was saying about the emotional catharsis for it, like, I feel like that was such the power of the show is that it was paying more attention to, like, the texture of this town and the characters themselves. And it makes it feel like the murder mystery is kind of a vehicle through which to tell the story he really wanted to mm-hmm. tell about, like, a woman in a small town who was, like, a little bit famous and, you know, her her crazy family. Like, does that feel like a healthy way for tv to move forward that like everyone likes a murder mystery true crime is everywhere so let's just find a way to put a true crime gloss on a different kind of story that can get people engaged or does that feel like it's kind of
3: like it worked for mayor of town but it could really cheapen a different kind of story
2: do you well, guys know what i mean
3: <laughs> i know exactly what you mean um I, the people making tv have been having this conversation for a really long time i remember roberto Aguirre sarcasa the uh creator of Riverdale and Sabrina like told the story at TCA years ago before Riverdale launched that like he was shopping an Archie show around and he couldn't get anyone to bite on an Archie show and then um i don't know who said it probably Greg Berlanti was like what if you put a murder in it <laughs> and, so, and then you had Riverdale which is such like uh, a wild ride um and uh, and ever since then it has just been increasingly a conversation where people are having a hard time in some spaces, getting anything made that doesn't have a whodunit aspect to it. Because it's not just like, or or just like a mystery box show in general, right? Because like Westworld at its best is also a like week to week what's going on question. It doesn't have to be like uh, exactly a murder. It needs to be something that people are trying to puzzle through. WandaVision was a similar thing, right? Um, So I think that that sort of buzzy week to week uh, conversation generating kind of plot uh, is something that hbo specifically is pursuing you think about the undoing you think about the outsider you think about flight attendant like think about sharp objects big little lies blah blah blah. like this is becoming their brand and um and i think the idea of like okay what story do i want to tell okay how can i put a murder in it like Mm -hmm. i don't know It, it could work out really well and then in some cases well like the undoing is a great example because the undoing the book is not a whodunit it directly from the beginning in the book, you know who done it, and uh, it was Susanna Beer's idea to make it a who done it because she wanted that week to week buzzy thing. But like when the answer is the obvious answer from the start, like that doesn't you just wind up with a really frustrating uh, experience. So so use cautiously, I would say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's smart to make the murder maybe an aspect of the show, but not necessarily the central like raison d'etre just because, like you were saying, Joanna, like it is so possible for that answer to be unsatisfying, especially because at this point, everybody who watches these shows has seen a 100 of them, knows the tricks, knows what a red herring is like, has has I think is more sophisticated in terms of puzzling out the plot. And therefore, it's getting harder and harder for the mystery aspect aspect itself to be satisfying. So I think everything around it has to be super solid so that either the mystery winds up being solved in a really interesting way or it just doesn't wind up mattering as much. Right.
2: I agree. I'm just so happy for Kate Winslet. You know, we talked about Ammonite last year and how she's really great and that movie kind of, like, had its flaws and was so underseen. I don't think her career has ever been, like, in danger of disappearing. Like, she's always going to be Kate Winslet. But I love so many people being like, holy shit, she's incredible, which... It's it's possible to forget when someone's been famous that long.
3: Well, and not just that, but, like, this proliferation of, like, you know, women in coastal towns or whatever and murder mystery and and, and award-winning actresses becoming executive producers, like, talking to the various folks who worked on Mayor, including, like, Evan Peters or Julian Nicholson, they were just talking about, like, how um, – how involved of an executive producer Kate Winslet was, how she was like there with a massive continuity binder at any moment to tell them like what was going on <laughs> in the show, how she cast Julian Nicholson, who's like a, an old friend of hers, how she called up Guy Pierce as a favor to show, you know, like it was just like it, it, it was very, uh, very hands on labor of love project for her. And so I'm I'm. I'm gratified for her that it was such a hit. Um, She did lose one
4: fight in the production though. She wanted to call it Kate Winslet's mayor of Town. and HBO
0: (laughs) said, you're not there yet. You're not Lee Daniels yet. A Kate Winslet production. (laughs) Sorry, Kate Winslet and Kate Winslet as mayor. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Okay, let's go back into the past for another Oscar flashback. Um, Once again, we're uh, every week bringing in a new VF colleague to talk about a Oscar-adjacent movie from the past that they want to talk about and maybe uh, we all would like to revisit. Um, And Hillary, given the list uh, of—I threw out, you know, just like a very random list of uh, Best Picture nominees, etc. over recent years, and you picked Quiz Show— and I asked you why, and you kind of didn't really know why when I asked you. But now that you've rewatched it, do you, do you know what made quiz show stick out in your brain?
0: Um, well, yes, uh, I do have a better answer now, which is, I think, a, a cousin to the answer that I maybe gave you when you initially asked me, which is that this movie uh, just personally combines several of my interests in uh, one great package. Uh, there's Columbia University, which I went to. Um, there's Jews in Mid-Century America. There's <laughs> trivia games, there's scandals, there's television. Um, it really, it really has it all. Young, hot Ray Fiennes. Uh, I feel mm-hmm. like I can't not mention him. Um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's just, it's just a really great package. And watching it again, uh, years after I had seen it the first time, I, it holds up. It's a great movie. I mean, that's not a very uh, interesting answer, but that's the full answer. It's just a really great movie that I enjoyed a lot and should have won Oscars.
2: It feels surprising on some level, though, because it, it has been kind of this, like, kind of forgotten prestige project of the 90s. Like, not forgotten, but, you know, it didn't really win any Oscars. It kind of underperformed. Like, as I was Googling it, there was a New York Times article being like, well, it didn't make a lot of money.
0: And they're assuming it's going to get Oscar nominations, but we don't really know. <laughs> the <laughs> funny, um, the that, funny thing or, about yeah. it is I bet if you took this same project and somebody were going to make it now, they would make it into a, like, 10-episode limited series. Oh, and a thousand absolutely. Percent. Yeah. A thousand percent. And yeah. it would do so well. I feel like it would be a phenomenal on yeah it should be six episodes though <laughs> <laughs> I was literally thinking like if there was a series of this I would get a whole flashback about Herb
2: Stemple's dad and I don't want a flashback about Herb Stemple's dad <laughs> I like the size of this movie and how it yeah I it do story. I,
3: I loved I, I had never seen this movie thank you so much Hillary for picking it it was it was always something that I like wanted to see and never saw and I don't know why and and I was I was young when this movie came out, but I do remember I remember it being a thing. Maybe just because I was so interested in Ray Fiennes at the time, but I remember it being a thing. Then to hear that it so underperformed at the box office, I was really surprised. Uh, because I, I thought it was like a hit. Um, but yeah, I I loved this movie. Um, I loved uh Rob Morrow in this movie. This is like so like it's it's. It's like Rob Morrow was such a big deal at this time. Northern Exposure was such a big deal at this time. And Rob Morrow had his like pick of opportunities and he's like, this is what I'm going to do. Quiz show. And I think he made a great choice. Um, and also I want to shout out, Uh, Rob Morrow's eyebrows in this movie. That's how I knew (laughs) that he was, like, definitely playing a real-life figure, because I was like, "What?"
0: Between between him and the Scorsese cameo, it's a really great eyebrow movie.
3: It's a uh, (laughs) brow-heavy, you know. um, And did you guys know that the character that he's playing went on to marry Doris Kearns Goodwin. That's not this is a, really, is a movie. Yeah. This is a really yeah.
0: great Wikipedia movie. Like there it are is. so many is. insane wow. threads that follow from it. Um, there's, there's a young Ethan Hawke at the, yes. like near the end of the movie showing. up. <gasps> that Abba. was
3: Ethan Hawke.
0: Yeah. Oh my that's God. Him. Calista
3: Flockhart's Calista there. Flockhart, I know this. because she was there. But yeah. wasn't Ethan Hawke kind of famous by then? This is the same year that Reality Bites came out. And wow. he had already done, like, White Fang and Dead Poet Society. And I feel like he was just like, hey, Robert Redford. Or, like, wanted to be near Paul Schofield. I don't know. But, like,
2: He's, like, asking yeah. about Don
3: Quixote, right? Yeah, yeah that's him. Wow. Yeah.
4: How have you guys not mentioned Mario Cantone playing a straight oh,
3: man? Oh, Yes. <laughs> Yelling at Ray finds in a phone booth. (laughs) Sign this for my wife. Okay, Mario can't tell.
4: (laughs) Uh, I hadn't seen the movie either. Um, And it was one of those, when I was a kid, when it came out, it sounded boring to me. And my dad was like into it because he was teaching at Deerfield Academy in Western Massachusetts. And that town is where Charles Van Doren went to like hide out.
3: To like oh. ride the scandal out. Uh, so it
4: was like, he didn't like know him or anything, but like it, it, my dad was just like very like invested in it. He was a professor. It's about professors, you know? And I was, so it was very much like a movie for my dad. Um, so I avoided it. And also because that same year, Pulp Fiction was nominated for Best Picture and Forrest Gump. And I saw Forrest mm-hmm. Gump, like, twice in theaters. I was really <laughs> into that movie. Mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction I was into as well, more so when I got older. But, like, I think Quiz Show was just such an a, a kind of a type of movie that at that age I was just not into. So it was it was a pleasure watching it. And I think it it's so well observed in so many ways. I think that Paul Schofield, who was the lone acting nominee for this, you know, it's a Brit playing an American with a kind of weird accent. But actually, like, academics intellectuals, you know, of that Northeastern varietal yeah. of that era, like, kind of did sound mm-hmm. like that.
3: Uh-huh. Um,
4: and all of the ways he's kind of haughty, but not kind and, you know, yeah. skeptical about technology and all this stuff. It was just, like, I knew those. Those were my dad's friends. Like, I, I knew, <laughs> and maybe a little my dad, too. But, like, I just, I, I think that part of the film is so, so strong. Um, I think where it didn't quite work as well for me was when toward the very end, they start talking about like the big themes of like what it's about beyond the scandal, which is like television and media and truth in media, all that stuff. I kind of wish that had been laced through a bit more throughout the film, Mm -hmm. but um, it definitely is a really fascinating look at like a pretty much pre internet time. That's about the power of television. And it's like, Oh, just you guys wait (laughs) like in a few years, this is all going to go even more screwy.
2: Yeah. It's kind of like how you feel watching Network too, being like, "Oh boy, guys, you did not realize how much worse it was going to get."
0: <laughs> yeah, I maybe had the wrong takeaway from the movie, which is listening to like Hank Azaria giving his testimony at the end. I was sort of like, you know, maybe this is a victimless crime. <laughs> 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 maybe it was fine, and uh, and Congress, you know, just didn't need to get involved.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I did see this when I was a kid. Like it's very much intertwined with Forrest Gump for me as like grown up movies from that period where I was like kind of just old enough to pay attention to it. I don't know why I saw it because I don't know why, I, but I remember watching it with my parents and a asking why they talked that way. Why Ray Finds and Paul Schofield <laughs> sounded like they were British? And she explained to me the same thing you did, Richard. that Like they just kind of talk like that. And I remembered so vividly. I'll remember for the rest of my life that Marty won Best Picture in 1955 because of this movie. And I had remembered that. I didn't remember that John Turturro says it like ten times throughout the movie. Like so many times. Everyone says the word of Marty so and I've still never seen Marty. Maybe that should have been next week's pick. No. Um, <coughs> But yeah, it was such a like grown up movie to me that I saw and vaguely remembered. But it really does hold up so well. It's nuts to me that it, it was SAG nominated for Rob Morrow. Um, he got the supporting actor nomination, but it wasn't nominated for ensemble because it's such a great ensemble. Like all those bit part people we were talking about, like Hank Azaria, David Paymer, David you know? Paymer. I mean, and Martin yeah. Scorsese, like yelling. And Martin Scorsese is so good in his great. like one terrifying scene. Yeah, um, and the fact that like you know in uh, 1980 it was that. Um, ordinary people beat Raging Bull for best picture and like film bros for decades were just like it was the greatest scandal of all time and that for for however reason that may have forged friendship between Redford and Scorsese that he goes and shows up in quiz show Um, you know it's one of those movies that's like entirely white men in suits basically but man great white men in
3: suits I don't know Mira Sorvino she's good. good Calling Rob Morrow, what, the, like, Uncle Tom of the Jews? I was like, that's a great Mary <laughs> Servino moment.
2: Also, the woman who plays um, John Tatora's husband, or, or wife, who I don't think she did much after that. Oh, Johan Carlo. Um, she's great. Yeah,
0: yeah there yeah. are, I will say that there are a lot of Italians playing Jews in this movie. <laughs> you know, Hillary, I, 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 yeah, I think that
4: there's something about the movie, watching it now, it's very conscious of anti-Semitism. It is, in a large part, about that but something about it feels like I this would get raked over the coals if it came out now.
0: <laughs> well, mm. the thing, I mean, I feel like the <laughs> the premise of the movie, if you are going to take an ungenerous reading of it, uh, which I guess I will right now, is like anti-Semitism is bad. However, like the Van Doren's are really good people. Um, and John Turturro uh, as Herb Stemple, he's really a slime ball and Hank Azaria is a slime ball. And, mm. uh, and like the only, the only I guess, quote unquote, kind of good Jew in the movie is Rob Morrow, is one. Um, and even he is kind of, you know, he's he's an Ivy League Jew, like he's kind of a different he's of different stock sort of or at least has kind of risen up through like wasp society to become respectable. So I think that, you know, you can look at this movie and kind of question its uh, its interpretation of <laughs> of uh, ethnic types in hmm. this time period. Um, If you're if you're going into it looking for something to be upset about, but I wasn't. So
3: <laughs> I, I I watched uh, an interview with Herb Stempel that he gave in like 2005 where he was talking about John Turturro's, like, so he was, a, he was hired as a consultant on the film and they tried to hire Charles Van Doren, and he was like, no, thank you. <laughs> um, but, and also Charles Van Doren wrote a series of like really up his own nose, uh, Essays for the New Yorker a couple of years ago, uh, several years ago that I was just like, oh boy, no lessons were learned here. Um, but um, <laughs> He doesn't
0: take a lot of responsibility. <laughs> I read the I read the one that he published in 2008. Yeah. Where yeah. He does not seem like he really feels that bad about any of it.
3: No. Um, but I. um I don't know. I kind of liked that. The like the seduction of, of Charles Van Doren uh, and then the seduction of Rob Morrow, like the fact that like Rob Morrow as this like Ivy League, I can have dinner in this nice rest, like have lunch in your in your uh, club here, like Jewish character. I don't know. I thought that was really interesting, but
0: uh, yeah, the, I, the I contrast see. between a Waldorf salad and a Reuben, I think yeah. is a nice moment of observation. <laughs> yeah. And there are no Rubens in this restaurant. I don't know. It was,
3: it was, it was, a uh, I don't know. It sort was of really interesting. And it, the the conversation that sparked on my Twitter feed, because I was tweeting through this movie as I want to do. And like, uh, I was like, it's wild that Ray Fiennes doesn't have an Oscar. It's and wild. Like, what would you give him an Oscar for? And this became like a very, like a lot of people had a lot of opinions about this, but there's like 90 good answers. <laughs> and, what were the popular um, answers? I mean, a lot of people said he should have won for Schindler's List over Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive. Like, let's just give him one out of the gate. Um, That's tough, though, man. That's a good win. Well, I mean, I think I want Tommy Lee Jones to also have an Oscar. I Just maybe not for The Fugitive, but, like, I want him to have an Oscar. So it's like, it was sort of, I feel like they gave Tommy Lee Jones the Oscar for The Fugitive because of his body of work. You know what I mean? So I suggested, like, that by that metric, Brie Fine should win for in Bruges for his like body of work, give him a supporting in Bruges. But that was Heath Ledger's year. So like he's not going to win that year. So uh, I don't know. There's just like a lot of opportunity, constant Gardner year. Like, you know, there's just like a lot of spots where he just seems like someone who should have an Oscar. I have
2: the right answer, actually. What is it? uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, that was a big one too. Yeah, yeah.
3: I, I think that's, was a, that's
2: the year Eddie Redmayne won. Yeah. And he wasn't
3: even nominated. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, he that, that, even nominated that's the Graham real was, outrage. Just, also,
2: yeah. I uh, immediately after I finished watching this, I realized Hail Caesar's on Netflix. So I, of course, went and watched the With the, the So <laughs> Simple scene, which is <laughs> so funny. It's so good. It's maybe like one of the best things that Cohen's ever done. And he's perfect in it.
3: So here's my idea. Put Ray Fiennes as the villain in Paddington 3. Oh. And give him the Oscar for that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Everyone's on board. Great. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, Playing no, you, Charles
3: Van yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I can like I can see if like Paddington like gets like retconned into the quiz show scandals and it's James Dorn. I can see that working. Well, do we want to talk about what people really did get upset about at the time as we go through our, you know, Googling of the movie? Like the whole accuracy question about the history was apparently a big old deal. Like people were getting up in arms about how they like the Rob Morrow character was kind of a composite and he, he didn't really get involved in the investigation until later. And the timeline got condensed into eight months instead of three
0: years. And, like, That's the risk ro- you take by making a movie about a bunch of eggheads. Uh, that They're all going to come <laughs> out of the woodwork. And uh, be excuse like, oh. me. <laughs> <laughs> That's basically what they did. Those two ribs clearly made different tones.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, as I was saying to you guys before we started, like, this became something that, like, the Harvey Weinstein playbook really would exploit. And, like, you would get it throwing back and forth about, like, who told the wrong history and the real— Daughter of the Wolf of Wall Street victim comes out and criticizes it. Um, and so this felt like kind of a proto version of that. Um, well, and yeah. it's, it's a little hard to tell how much it hurt it in the Oscar race, but it really is interesting that they're like, it's a movie about accuracy, but this movie isn't
3: inaccurate at all. Well, it feels like kind of formless, whereas like exactly what, you know, Richard and Hillary were talking about in terms of like... I feel like if Harvey were to attack this movie, not that I want to give Harvey Weinstein credit for anything, but, like, his his attacks had narrative to them, right? And so I feel like he would have gone with, like, the anti-Semitic, like what is this sh- movie really saying about Jewish people? Like, that's a Harvey attack versus like, oh, these, this is a composite character. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. okay, the, every movie has a composite character. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, that was so. the victimless crime of the uh, <laughs> of the Quisho scandal.
4: There's also an interesting media angle to the inaccuracy, you know, a movie about media. It, it, and, and in this case, it was that the newspapers were reporting this story way before... Uh, Goodwin and, and, you know, whatever, you know, the government got involved, basically. And so a movie about television is kind of ignoring the work of newspapers, also ignoring the fact that this was common practice on radio programs before quiz shows on TV became a thing. Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
4: So I think that's kind of just an interesting meta kind of parallel. I also, when reading about these, uh, the, the true story behind Quiz Show and about the, the, the media aspect of it, uh, they mentioned the eight major newspapers in New York.
0: Yes. Oh my God. Uh, uh, it's like, it's like good too. God, the world has changed. Um, <laughs> I, know. I mean, my main objection is that they filmed it at Fordham, uh, which yeah. I think. Oh, that's bad. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of Fordham alums on our staff,
2: though, and they're all very proud of it. So don't take that away from them, please, <laughs> Hillary. This New York Times article about its uh, box office underperformance has these quotes from Robert Redford where, you know, he's talking about how it um, how it did well in France. And he was like, they they have an easier time dealing with our loss of innocence than we do. And the idea that the show is just like speaking this truth that everyone's afraid to say that, like, we had a time where we like there is like that element of 50s nostalgia being like before television came and like broke everything down, everything was doing great. That doesn't hold up as well. But I do think its general media critique of, like, the power of television to influence minds, like, does remain relevant, even if it feels like it's only scratching the surface now.
4: To influence minds and also kind of, like, put... Like, I think that the the way that the the Vandorans are, are depicted and, and performed is so well observed because, like, they're likable, but mm-hmm. they are in this incredibly insular, waspy, mm-hmm. you know, very sort of... It's a very cloistered group of people in that kind of power. And here you have other people from Queens, heaven forbid, becoming national (laughs) celebrities, asserting their intelligence, even if it was, you know, there was some falsehood involved in that. I think the movie, maybe in its time, was sort of like a little bit uncritical of the Van Doren's world. But I think that as it exists now, the film really depicts them in, in, in kind of a negative light, too, because they're so unwilling to accept the sort of changing mores of culture in America. And so it is about a loss of innocence, but like kind of for them. And it's about a lot of other people kind of rushing in and being like, we can have a voice too, because now there is this mass proliferation of media. And I don't know. I think that's kind of uh, the movie is interesting in hindsight for that. I don't know if that was the intent in 1994.
3: And Um, I think that Goodwin, you know, Rob Morrow's character's like protection of Van Doren is so damning. Like I just, you know, that he doesn't want to put Charles Vendoren on trial because he, he buys into like this golden boy sort of like Gatsby thing. Yeah. You know? And so it's just sort of like, I don't know. I I found that really strong, but um, it's kind of wild that it got as many nominations as it did given like how poorly it performed at the box office. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if this is just Robert Redford standing, uh, you know, guaranteed him a DGA nomination and all sort of stuff like that. But, like – and Paul Schofield is great in the film. So, like, I'm I'm glad that he got nominated. But, but yeah, it's so funny because I always thought of, like, the whole quiz show thing as an injustice. And then looking at, like, where it actually stood in the conversation, I think at the time I'd be like, well, you know (laughs) – the, the, the public didn't take to it. So, like, you know, should we be dumping tons of awards on its doorstep? I don't know. Um, I mean, the
2: the Oscar lineup that it was part of, I mean, Forrest Gump is a, you know, massive legacy we can grapple with back and forth. It wins Best Picture. Then it's Four Weddings and a Funeral, Pulp Fiction, Quiz Show, and The Shawshank Redemption. That is a fascinating lineup of 100% movies that would never be made today. And I, I don't know. I, I kind of stand by it uh, um, as a whole. A great well,
4: I mean, like, because is isn't. Pulp Fiction kind of the Herb Stemple in that group, you know, the sort of newer, like, you know, there you have these very traditional, in some ways, kind of, uh, you know, inspirational, uplifting or, or, you know, sort of interesting period piece Oscar movies. And then there's this new modern sort of like outsider thing, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and and of course, Pulp Fiction is the one in the longer race that won. You know it in movies like it are still being made to some extent. Yeah. Um, whereas the other ones, yeah, that they have fallen by the wayside they are they are, they were not on the kind of cutting edge of modernity uh, maybe in the way that they felt at the time.
2: Maybe we should do a Forrest Gump episode. I mean, it's, it's I will so come so much back. to grapple with. <laughs> we should do a, should do a Shawshank wanna... episode. Yeah, I would like to show Forrest Gump to like a 20-year-old now. It'd be
3: like, you just have to understand. People went nuts for this thing. I don't know no, how to explain then it to gonna you. No, you're going to one of those annoying essays where it's like, I watched this movie you guys all loved 20 years ago, and I thought it was bad. And I'm like, all right. It's <laughs> like, <So> congratulations. <laughs> Good for you.
4: I was curious about Robert Redford's educational background because this movie is, in, among other things, a lot about like university culture and Ivy League culture and he did go to UC Boulder in Colorado for a year and a half but he eventually studied painting at Pratt in, in in Brooklyn the Pratt Institute really really can you imagine a young Robert Redford sidling up to you at a bar in Brooklyn in like the 50s or whatever and being like I'm a painter oh, <laughs> oh
2: how? No. Like I would just fall over dead
4: <laughs>
0: we have oh, to assume he no. had a
2: very enjoyable time in his,
0: yeah. <laughs> in his experience as a painting student well, thank you for putting that picture into our heads, Richard. I know.
5: Now I need I, that I movie. It.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's like a black turtleneck
3: involved, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh no.
5: <laughs> hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial.
4: People want coverage of Donald Trump. They're sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years.
5: Join me, Brian Seltzer, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.
4: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. terms apply
2: okay Joanna let's listen to your interview with Sasha Mamet um, she is on The Flight Attendant which we uh, all adored and talked about to some extent and what now feels like a very blurry COVID winter um, it was like one of the bright spots that I can remember from that period where like it felt like the election was never going to end and like COVID was never going to end but we got to uh, travel the world with Kaylee Quoco and solve a mystery and Sasha Mamet is so good as her best friend on the show so what'd you guys talk about?
3: Yeah, well, it's funny because we talked about appointment television. She was in the throes of her Mare of Easttown uh, addiction when we talked, and I swear she brought it up, not me. So, <laughs> But also just that she took this role intentionally to sort of get away from the Shoshana uh, box that she's been... S- found herself in and that she took Annie because she felt like it was a really different thing for her to do. Uh, and, and just about like maybe the, the, you know, she's grateful for having been associated with such like a beloved strong character, like Shoshana, but then like maybe some of the, the struggles that come with that in terms of trying to build your career from there. So uh, and including some advice from David Mamet. So here's Sasha Mamet uh, with some career advice from her dad. I want to start by asking you something that I've seen you say over and over again in interviews about the flight attendant is that you were really looking for something that was different from Shoshana, that you wanted to do something new and sort of expand the way that maybe people thought about what you could do, what was in your your arsenal. Um, And I'm wondering if you've seen already the fruits of that in terms of the projects that are coming across your desk after flight attendant.
1: That's an interesting question. It's sort of a double-edged sword when you get to play such a specific and loud character, because it's such a gift as an actor. Like I loved playing that character so much, and to get to do it over six seasons was so amazing. And I feel like she kind of grew in her zaniness. Yeah. Um, but it. It was a tricky thing. It did pigeonhole me in a way. And I think our industry is such a funny one in that even though everybody knows that the game is that we as actors play pretend for a living, that we play people who we aren't, it's when you do a part like that for that long, somehow people who know that, like casting directors or directors or writers, seem to forget and it's funny because I would even go into meetings and I am so different from her as a human being. Like I am covered in tattoos and <laughs> I would not literally at the end of, of our show, our costume designer was like, anything that you want to take from your closet. And I was like, I literally want nothing. Like I want <laughs> nothing that she wore. Everything that she wore is so uncomfortable to me and I hate every color of it. And um But I would go into meetings with people like, it's so funny, I expected someone different. And I'm like, really? (laughs) Also, have you not seen me on late night or in interviews? Or (laughs) it's just interesting. It's like even, you know, I understand that from fans like, I I often say people would meet me, especially when the show was on and they'd almost be like disappointed because they'd be expecting Shoshana and then they'd meet me and I'd be like, hey man, what's up? And they'd be like, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 thank you. Right. Um, It's a tricky line to walk because you are so grateful and I jumped wholeheartedly into playing that part, but it definitely did make it more difficult. And I think... That's the reason I also search for jobs that are outside of the realm of her, not only for that reason, but also because I just love to challenge myself as an actor and do something I haven't done before. But it's interesting, like even having played this role of Annie, I think I think change in this industry and people accepting it takes some time. I'm still pushing the rock up the hill a little bit. But I'm like, I accept your challenge. (laughs) And I will continue to show you that I can do different things. Um, And it does every time I get to do something different. And people do give me that opportunity. And I feel like they see that ability in me. It makes it that much sweeter. And it was was that thing with flight attendant. I was so excited when I got this job. Because I was like, people are finally giving me the opportunity to to flex a different muscle. And still, you know, I'll talk to my manager and she'll be like, yeah, they're just a little worried that you can't do X, Y, or Z. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll make a tape and I'll try and show them. And if they say no, then we'll move on to the next. I'm like, my dad always used to say to me when I was young, he was like, "I, you know, this industry is so much about talent, but so much more about Persistence. It's like who is the last man standing? He was like, you're going to be told no so many times. There are going to be so many doors that are shut in your face, and you just have to be the one that's like, every time a door shuts, you just go and you knock on another one, and then you knock on another one, and it's like, who is the person who's continuing to knock on doors after other people are like, I'm done knocking. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm over. I'm over it. I'm
3: all knocked out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: I'm all knocked out. <laughs>
3: I love that. That's great advice for almost any industry, honestly. Totally. Yeah. Something that you had mentioned to me before uh, was that you and your husband had done some producing work. And I I did want to hear more from you about this idea, like as an actress wanting to uh, be given the opportunity to show your full range, you know, a way in which some actors take control of that is by producing their own projects. That's obviously something that Kaylee did on this show. So I'm wondering, you know, like, to what degree are you interested in doing that in terms of shaping your career? Not like it's as easy as snapping your finger. Well, I'll just make it myself. It's, there's, it's a long road, but
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, like I've always, I said, I'm I was so impressed with Kaylee, not only for doing this and like, that's something we definitely connected on was like, being pigeonholed and people being like, oh, you can only do this one thing. And she was like, I'm going to do this totally opposite thing. Um, And also the fact though, that she, from when she read the byline of like the excerpt on Amazon about this book to when we were shooting, I think was three years, which people are like, that's so long. And I'm like, that is like the snap of a finger in the (laughs) entertainment industry. That's like the speed of light. And she's such a powerhouse. She's so incredible. And I adore her. But um, yeah, I certainly we have loved producing my husband and I what we've done together. And I what I was starting to say yesterday was like, I love that aspect of being a part of a project from its inception to its birth. Mm -hmm. You know, I think not only from a control standpoint, but more so just like to be able to see something grow is such a special aspect of what we do. And it just gives you that, it's like working that much harder for something and then being, you know, the fruits of your labor are that much sweeter. But yeah, it's it's also something that I've been um, very actively thinking about and pursuing for also that reason, you know, it's sort of like, okay, well, if the industry isn't going to give me the things that i want then i'm going to go make them for myself. um and so there are a bunch of things that i am working on with friends and have in development myself and a couple of things that i'm looking to option and i feel like because it does take so long sometimes to get things made and you yeah. never know like what's going to stick or not and what the climate's going to be i kind of currently am just i'm like exploring a lot of avenues and you know, have a lot of irons in the fire to be like, okay, we're going to throw a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. Um, You're knocking at all the different doors, like all kinds I'm knocking of doors. Gonna, I'm <laughs> knocking on like a tiny door. I'm knocking on a big door. I'm yeah. knocking on like a weird sliding door. <laughs> um, yeah. So like there is, a project I'm in negotiations on to try an option right now. Um, I'm developing something with a friend. I'm developing something of my own. I I wrote like, you know, a whole whole bunch of different, like a smattering of things, which also is just, I try to take the pressure off of it a little bit um, and look at it as well because it is so hard to get things made and you put so much effort into something and sometimes nothing comes of it and the heartbreak is like, that much greater because you've invested so much of yourself, but I try and look at it as just another creative avenue Like when I'm not acting, just another way to be creative and to learn and to think about things and to work my mind in that way. And so even if something doesn't come to fruition, I'm like, that was a net positive regardless.
3: The experience of it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm curious for Flight attendant specifically. This is, you know, one of my favorite shows of of the fall. I got like immediately addicted and immediately frustrated that I didn't have more more screeners to watch when I ran <laughs> out of screeners. Um and I'm I'm curious, you know, like one one theory of the case for why the show connected the way that it did um, so that some people were floating to me is that, oh, it was like this escapist travel sort of romp mm-hmm. in a time when we were all in lockdown, you know what I mean? Um, but I'm curious if you have a theory of like why, other than it being just like really fun and really good, but like why Flight Attendant connected in the, in the landscape that it's so hard to get a show to break through in that way. You know,
1: I have a couple different theories on that. I guess I understand the travel aspect of it. Although our show travels a bit, but not that much. Like it's a lot in New York, yeah. but I think it's twofold. And one of them is maybe a little woo woo. <laughs> um, but I've been doing this for like almost 20 years. It's, Exceptionally rare that you have this group of people come together on a show, not only cast, but also crew, and then like your executives and your showrunners, where everyone truly loves each other and is creatively on the same page, same work ethic, and like just genuinely enjoys working together. And we had that on this show and it's like it's like the stars aligning. It's like a magic, it's like lightning in a bottle. And I think that that can't help but translate to the screen. Everybody putting their heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears into what we made and then being like so excited and proud to have it in the world. Also because we were told when we were stopped five into eight that it would be in the world. But all of us were like, I mean, you say that, but like, we don't know what's going to happen. So I think when it actually finally was, we were like, we did it! (laughs) Um, So I think that that's part of it. Mm -hmm. And then I also think, you know, I'd never made a thriller before. Like, I'd never been involved in anything that was like a whodunit and I think that this show, we all joke that we're like so sick of hearing the word tone and talking about tone. But like, it's sort of hard not to with this show because it is such a specific tone. And I think it also kind of ticked all of these boxes at a specific time where people were feeling so many feelings and also not knowing what they were feeling and being overwhelmed by what they were feeling. And um, I think... The show is really funny. It also deals with some very real issues like addiction and familial relationships and friendships and falling in love and being terrified of that and being afraid for your life. And also (laughs) at the same time is like a really brilliantly written thriller, which I think I love a thriller. I love an Agatha Christie novel. I love a Hitchcock movie. Like I think a thriller makes you lean in when it's done well, because you're like, what's going to happen? Like we would get the scripts and I like in the hair and makeup trailer, we'd all be like, okay, so you guys, what do you think? So I just read five. What do you think is going to happen in six? Like as the people on the show, we were like, what? I can't wait to get seven. (laughs) Like what's going to happen in seven. And so you think, okay, well, if we're feeling that reading it and making it, hopefully an audience is going to feel that way. And I, I think they did. So I think it was a combo of like pulling people in with the thriller aspect of it and like people wanting to know what's going to happen. And then also hopefully giving them some great comedy and then also like some real humanness to connect to.
3: Yeah, no, I, I I love that, and I completely agree. And I think some, something that you said, like this idea of the Who Done It, uh, and how that can grip people week to week. Um, I, I did want to ask you about that if you had any opinions. This is a this is an HBO Max show. You've done an HBO show. You've done a lot of other shows, but there's uh, I think a an ongoing and sort of increasingly loud conversation around this idea of releasing week to week versus all at once in a binge sort of thing. And something like Flight Attendant doesn't work as well, right? If it's just dropped in a binge, you want that like week, you know, an Max, a, I think a really smart thing, which is a hybrid sort of rollout, right? You drop a bunch of episodes at the beginning and get people sort of really into it and then parcel out week to week from there. So I, you heaved a heavy sigh. I'm wondering if you have what your thoughts are on all of well, this.
1: it's just funny that you're saying that because so my, my husband and I've been watching Mayor of Town. Yeah. And the frustration that I feel at the end of each week that I can't like, I genuinely, if I had gotten all seven at once, I would have been like, I quit life today. I'm going to (laughs) go watch seven hours of television. Goodbye. Please don't call me. Right. Like last last night we watched the latest episode and I like literally was pulling at my clothing. I was like, (laughs) how do we have to wait a week for this? and i was like i have so many questions and how will they all be answered um so that was where the heavy side came from because that was like my last night's experience <laughs> but yeah. i i but it is interesting because i do think our industry is dealing with this really heavy question we have created this binge mentality and what does that mean for supply and demand? What does that mean for like how people actually experience a show? And I think COVID quarantine was obviously created a bizarre variable because the demand was so much higher because people had nothing else to do. So I think things will shift a bit back hopefully to normal now. But it is a really interesting question because you know it used to be that watching television was like it was like an occurrence in a household you know like often people would do it as a family or like you would yeah. make sure you were home at a certain point to watch your show right and that's obviously those days are long gone but i i actually really liked the fact that they released our show in the way they did and it was a bit uh if i'm understanding it correctly like a product of circumstance was that they wanted all of our show to be out before Christmas Mm -hmm. um and they didn't want to drop it all at once but I did feel like it kind of created a happy balance where it satiated you enough so that it wasn't just one and you were like waiting for more (laughs) um but it still kept you wanting more um I've and I've noticed other shows doing that, like Hacks just did that recently. Yeah. Like, I think they've been dropping two at a time. Right. Um, and so I feel like potentially maybe that's the answer. But it's definitely something that our industry, I know, like everyone is talking about and I think is a very interesting debate. Um my last
3: question, though I could talk to you about Maravistown all day long, is about Annie and how much I enjoy that that character is not just like a satellite to Cassie, but is, mm. you know, her own, like fully formed with her own thing going on character. And I think that's just sort of speaks to Flight Intent in general, that like, yes, Cassie is the center of this maelstrom, but there is depth to it. Um, and what I also really appreciate is it feels like the Cassie Annie love story, even though it's a friendship, it's a love story. Like that that is like the central love story of this show. It's not about like, you know, this guy or that guy. So like that. So I was wondering if you could talk about that aspect of the series.
1: Um first of all, you just like literally got a straight line to my heart because I've been (laughs) saying that doing press for the show since the beginning. And like when I read the scripts, I was like, that's the main love story of the show. And it was one of the things that actually drew me to the show and The minute that I heard, so I got called in to do a chemistry read with Kaylee, Mm -hmm. and I was like, "Oh, these people know what's up," because like they're doing a chemistry read between two best friends, which is so important. And our chemistry was so immediate. And I I keep saying in press that our that I feel like the Annie Cassie relationship was literally born in that audition. Yeah. Um, and then it just rolled from there. But I think so much of that comes from me spending six years on the show where that was what we talked about like there were male female love stories there were you know the male characters on the show were still quite important and those were important aspects of the show but they were always secondary to the relationships between the four of us and that like it was very clear that those were those were the most important relationships. Yeah. And so I'm really fascinated by female friendships. And I feel like they're stories that are undertold. And I think that they're really interesting as we get older as well. And it was something that I loved so much about the Annie Cassie relationship because I think it's a really classic, like, female trope friendship which is someone you've been friends with like best friends with since you were very young, who, if you met today, you would be like, no, 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 <laughs> no, <ma'am."> no, yeah. <laughs> no, no, you'd be like, Oh, great to meet you. Okay. Thanks. Bye. And walk away and be like, wow. I'm deleting her number. Yeah. Um, but because you've been friends for so long, that person is now your family and you will be friends until the day you die, but you hate them as much as you love them. And they, they, get under your skin and they know how to push your buttons, but you'll never leave them because they're a part of you. And I think that that's a very specific type of female friendship that we all know so well. I was, I felt like they wrote it so honestly and so genuinely. And like the that breakup episode was just, I was so excited to play that episode because I was like, this is so real and human. Mm. And we, as women, I feel like so deeply understand the gravity of what this means. Um, and so I do really believe I did really feel like it was the main love story because you also see it has, it has all of the pushes and pulls of a romantic love story too, of like, how far am I willing to go for this person? What am I willing to compromise? What am I willing to put up with? Like, I love them in spite of, despite of, because of all of these things. So yes, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think it is the main love story. And that was so fun to play. And I feel like, all of our writers and Steve, our showrunner, and um, just did such a good job of writing how complicated that relationship is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they really allowed me and Kaylee to just like play within those confines. But I feel like the second half of that question about the supporting characters, like the foils surrounding Kaylee, that it was another reason I was so drawn to the show was that Kaylee is absolutely like the central fire of the show and the driving engine. But I feel like everyone understood that these surrounding characters had to be so fully three-dimensional and have like an entire fully fledged life of their own that the audience could be just as invested in, in order to enrich the central storyline of Kaylee and also yeah. to like add fire to it and Kaylee like Cassie is at an 11 basically for the entire show and so I think it was also really important to have this stability of the other characters and the shit that they're going through in order to not just make it seem like we're walking this tightrope up at an 11 at the whole like the whole time and I think I really got to do that. I think Rose really got to do that. Like her storyline is built throughout the show and is so fascinating and she plays it so beautifully. But for me, it it was really something that drew me to the character and then something that made the experience just so rich and fulfilling creatively because I feel like even though clearly Annie is, not the driving force at all of this show. They wrote such a fully fledged character for me who is having her own existential crisis. Yeah. And I you know I say that Annie's so much like an onion and she starts out at the beginning like just totally like she's like an onion wearing like chain link armor and then by <laughs> the end she's like a it's like a tiny little naked onion who's like no. I don't know who I am. what's happening? Um But they really wrote this beautiful unraveling for her that I got to play while also dealing with the Annie-Cassie relationship. And I was just so grateful for that. And I feel like they really did that for all of the characters surrounding Kaylee.
3: I think that's right. And um, I know I said that was my last question for you, but I do have one very final quick one, which is uh, Please, what, if anything, can you tell me about season two or discussions you are having around it?
1: Probably nothing or I get fired. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but we, we always make jokes. My husband's also an actor. We always make jokes. Like if we ever by accident and like give a spoiler alert, like whatever, whoever we're working for, like in this case, Warner, like if I were to say something I wasn't supposed to say, like all of a sudden, like a SWAT team would descend and uh-huh. then just like throw me in a van and like I'd never be heard from again. Yeah, you'd be um, disappeared. Yeah, yeah. I'd just be disappeared. But um, <laughs> we're shooting in L.A., Um, But everybody knows that already. So we're moving to sunny California. I know that Annie is going through some stuff and still attempting to find herself, as I think Cassie is as well, you know, struggling with being a sober human being, attempting to be a sober human being. And I think they honestly actually have told me very little. (laughs) So I, I'm not even like withholding much, but I think it's just going to be as one of my favorite second ads would say same, same, but different. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so I love, that. Uh, you know, like, I think it's going to be, we're just going to see more of all of these characters. There's still going to be some more adventures. There's definitely the thriller aspect is still there um, but I think also we're going to dig a little bit deeper into, you know, I feel like last season was sort of like an umbrella of this thriller. And we got like a taste of the undertone of like seeing the humanness of all of these people, like, which is what we've been talking about and sort of them coming apart and trying to put themselves back together. Yeah. Um, and I think we're going to dig even deeper into that this season as sort of like, what's really going on with these folks. And we kind of left everybody a bit at the end of last season, like at rock bottom. And so I think this season is going to be like people trying to figure out how to put themselves back together again. I love that.
3: Well, thank you. I do not think that will get you disappeared, but uh, (laughs) people who are curious Uh, and thanks so much for the chat. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it was such a pleasure. Thank you.
2: And now we're going to share the interview that I did with Lena Waithe who is a co-writer and a star on the new season of Master of None. Uh, When we spoke it hadn't come out yet so um, it's been kind of interesting watching the reaction from there um, because the season is really just about her and a new character played by Naomi Ackie and they, um, you know, since Master of None season two uh, Lena Waithe's character Denise has gotten married to this interior designer um, played by Naomi Ackie. It shows them in their incredibly picturesque upstate New York house and then their relationship kind of starts to fall apart from there. Um, And it's a really big departure from what the show has been before. Aziz Ansari has directed every episode, but uh, is his character only shows up very briefly. Um, so I talked to her about, you know, being at the center of, a, of the show for the first time, kind of where she is in her work, like since Master of None really launched her career. She's been working on a lot of different things. She's been supporting a lot of other uh, filmmakers' careers. Um, she executive produced the Amazon series Them, which also came out this spring. Um, so, you know, for someone who's in the middle of everything and kind of what feels like a lot of exciting things happening in Hollywood, uh, Lena Waith was a really interesting person to talk to. So let's listen to that. <laughs> So can you just tell me, like, at what point you guys sat down and said this season was going to exist and and what the spark was to make it look like what it does?
5: Um, Yeah, well, it's interesting because we never really sat down and had that conversation. I don't think that's ever how it works with our show. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think... We talk. We we have conversations. As he watches things, he'll watch a a French movie about a love story that'll inspire him, and he'll say, "Huh, what if we do that with Denise?" And then he'll just start. He'll send me the movie, which he did. And what was the uh, movie? Um, and he sent me a couple different movies. Movies that you know I, I think very few people have heard of, or or I can even remember the titles. It was just something about the way he was looking at. He sort of he was living in London and like watching old movie. He, he rarely watches current movies or. Uh, or or English-speaking movies. So he'll talk to me about things that I'm not super familiar with and he'll just send me DVDs and and I would pop them in and look at them. And I think the thing that we kind of noticed was that American love stories tend to be very straightforward oftentimes and tend to wrap up with a nice bow and everybody lives happily ever after. And what we were sort of discovering was that you know that oftentimes love stories can be messy and can be have a lot of highs and lows and can be a little dark uh, with little moments of humor and and I think that really spoke to him and it spoke to me and this was about a couple of years ago that we started just sending drafts back and forth and and then he started to do some research about the fertility, IVF and, and queer couples. And we both sort of got educations about that because I haven't gone through that personally, nor has he, but we started talking to doctors and, and women who have gone through that, who are a part of queer uh, relationships and just sort of the, the the lack of inclusivity, the the language that sort of needs to be updated. And that was sort of very fascinating to us as well. And so we just sort of continue to have conversations and pretty soon we, we had a few scripts that we thought were really interesting. And then COVID happened. Um mm-hmm. And then, but the way we had written it was that it was always just two people in the house and and yeah. talking. And so we, after the dust settled and we were able to go film in London, we realized that this was a very COVID friendly set of scripts and uh, and it sort of made us even more intimate and being, you know, in this bubble. And it was not easy filming during COVID and, and, it's, and it's been just very difficult to navigate But for the most part, it forced us to really lean into each other and to be honest and to be vulnerable in a way that I've never really been on screen before. And so I think ultimately we got something really beautiful out of it.
2: Was there any hesitation to you either in like returning to acting to this degree or or returning to Denise? Because, you know, your life has changed. You've grown up. Everyone Mm -hmm. has since the last time you played Denise. Like, what did that feel like to go back?
5: It felt like going back to you know, I felt like going to a high school reunion, you know, and um, that I'm excited, uh, but also I'm a different person and mm-hmm. everything seems different now. Yeah. But I think what for Aziz and myself, we, we don't like repeating ourselves. We, we just we don't. And so but Aziz and Alan had always, I think, dreamed of Master of None to be uh, this thing that evolves over time. And so the, the season one is very different from season two. And now season three is very different from those previous seasons. And I think that's how we wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, we, want, we would always be guessing and we want to continue to stretch and grow as artists. And I absolutely did um, this season. But also I had grown up. I, I'm, I'm not the same. I really feel like a kid when I was on the uh, season one. I think Aziz feels the same way. We were we were new and, and young and still trying to figure it out. And I feel like now still young, but a little bit older, a little bit wiser, a little bit more mature sure, and and, and as, as human beings, but also as artists. And so I think mm-hmm. that's why it was also very exciting and thrilling for us to come back together and work together. But also, too, you know, me and Aziz are like siblings. So we're both alphas. We both have our way of doing things. And so you know, I'm not his little sister anymore coming mm-hmm. back. You know? mm-hmm. And I think now I'm sort of his equal and, uh, and, yeah. and we're going to bicker about the creative choices, but I, but there's a level of trust that has to be there as well. You know, he's directing all of this. And so, and even though I co-wrote everything, I have to really trust that he's going to take it where it needs to go. And and also I have to trust him as a director because I am so literally and vigorously sometimes naked on screen, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, whether I'm in a tub or I'm changing and I have to really trust him to handle this story with care and to handle my vulnerability um, with care as well. And I believe he did that beautifully, myself and Naomi.
2: Yeah. I mean, did it feel like a really different kind of acting than you had done on the show before, you know, like you had had like intimate and vulnerable scenes in previous seasons, but like, you know, you have like a 10 minute long take of a conversation in bed. Like that is a really whole new level of acting that you have to do here.
5: Absolutely. You know, it, it definitely forced me to grow a lot. And I also, I'm, I'm, I'm very method because I'm not trained. And so, a lot of what you're seeing are just real emotions coming up, and and me really reacting. Even though, yes, it's written, and I know what's coming. I'm playing by ear, as as Mm -hmm. Aziz says. He says there are different... Because I also did ask Aziz, I was like, I kind of wanted to work with the coach before this because there are some very dramatic scenes that I had to embark on. And Aziz said, look, there are two different kinds of musicians. There are people that are classically trained and those that learn how to play by ear. And he said, you play by ear. And he said, and I want you to continue to do that in this season. And so what you're seeing are... Just me being as honest and as vulnerable as I can possibly be on screen. And I think it comes through. But I think a lot of that is because I trust my scene partners so much, is because I trust my director so much and because I trust the crew that we had around us, you know, that were fantastic and phenomenal. They were a London crew and um, obviously working under very, you know, specific restraints um, due to uh, a shooting in a pandemic. But it was really, I felt very safe and, um, and very protected. And I think that's why I was able to, to sort of just be so honest and so real in, in that performance.
2: I want to talk about the house that you guys are in because it's, you know, it's to say a house as a character is a cliche, but like it really is. Like it's so important to how this story is told. And it's, you know, it's beautiful. It's this like, you know, kind of like Nancy Myers fantasy cottage, but the interior of it is so specific to the characters. And I watched, I know you did an architectural digest like office tour, and I was looking at your office, being like, wait, I know, okay, I know she's not the production designer, but like, what was the hand in it? So like what oh, shout
5: out to Amy, <laughs> yes, who was yeah. phenomenal. We had a phenomenal production designer. Her name is Amy, and she um, did such a wonderful job. That house that you're seeing, the interior is built. Mm-hmm now there's an exterior that we did go to as a real house and a real cottage, but everything you see inside is someone built by hand. And um, and I really, it, it was such a huge part of our performance and such a huge part of obviously Aziz's ability to direct the scenes. It was this place that they built for us to just exist in, um, for us to fight in, for us to love in, for us to dance in, for us to cook in, and um, and for us to go through hell in. I mm-hmm. mean, that that those four walls, even though there were many walls. uh, But we really had to exist in in that space. And it was just super important. I think I know it it may, as cliche as it may sound, that set and that production design team did so much work and so much research uh, in terms of artists, in terms of the the the, the couch. This couch that I'm sitting on right now is, is, a, is a, a replica of one that was on set. I, I literally bought because I loved it so much. <laughs> is
2: that that main living room
5: couch? Is that the same or is yes. it a different color? Oh, man. Yeah, it's so man. beautiful. It's like, it's like a whole situation. I what to a get great it. couch. Yes. Because um, <laughs> I did, I eventually, I mean, also I was living on that set for a yeah. while, if you can imagine. So, it also started to feel like home after a while. We would come into that set and go, okay, what are we doing today? Are we fighting today? Are we dancing today? Mm. Mm-hmm. Are we slow? What's, what's happening? What's going on? Um, but it was it was really we were ready to come in and just expose ourselves and to each other, um, to the screen. And also because it is on film, you know, every every moment is precious. And so I didn't want to waste a single moment. Every mm-hmm. every single take, every one. Or I, I really showed up. Naomi showed up. Aziz showed up. Our camera crew, our, our production design people, our wardrobe folks Everybody really made sure that no take was in vain, and and it was it could be draining some days for sure. But I think Aziz was also very sensitive to that and knew that all right, I think we got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it can take a lot out of you.
2: And as the season goes on, like without spoiling anything too much, you're kind of invited to think about what the house looks like when two black women live in it, as opposed to uh-huh. presumably these white people who show them at the end, and the Absolutely. you know how how that might change. And so that that was what struck me so much is it felt there aren't a there are a lot of stories about couples living in beautiful country houses. There aren't a lot about two black women living in a beautiful country house, and the fact that everything about that home really reflected that and. And it seemed like it was some way of being like, "Well, why haven't you seen this before? Like it makes you think about how this home feels so lived in and yet isn't something that's existed on a show before.
5: yeah, and it's interesting because it's interesting. I didn't realize it hadn't existed yet. I don't think it had at least yeah when when because the thing is when you are invisible, you don't realize you're invisible, but also it's like about who are you invisible to? Mm-hmm. I was never invisible to myself. I'd all Every day I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror. I see me there. And so I think that's why, to me, visibility is just the bare minimum, because I can be visible in my own life. But it's about being visible in a well-rounded way, in a very Mm -hmm. complex way, in a very imperfect way. You know, and I think there's sometimes this desire because there's so little representation Mm -hmm. of queer Black love. Somebody could also ask, why does there have to be so much turmoil? And I think it's important that there is. Mm-hmm. because it's important that people see us as everyone else. We don't have it more figured out than anybody else. You know, we, 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 we make homes, we make these lives for ourselves, and we still mess up in it.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And I think the desire to see us as perfect does us more of a disservice. We have to show us as fully-fledged human beings. And that's why it's important for me to sometimes not always be likable, to maybe be the villain in my own story. Because if I'm always the hero, it leaves for the other queer Black kids out there, way too much to live up to.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: I want them to be, just exist as imperfect beings rather than these sort of sanctified idea of what society thinks you're supposed to be. And I think that's what's so important about this season is that I'm not, my character's not perfect. Naomi's character isn't perfect. Um, we're two imperfect people trying to build a life together. And I think that's what a relationship, what a marriage is. You know, And some days you're in love, other days you're just roommates. And it's important for us to see that for ourselves. Because you can just put us on the screen, but that's not enough, like show us as we are. Um, and we're imperfect beings.
2: It's interesting that the so much of the theme of the season is of Denise's specifically like fear of following something up, like of having success and trying to do something next. Cause it's kind yeah. of, it's not really the position you've been in. Like you've been having you know significantly success, but I think that gnawing fear of living up to yourself is something that exists for all creative people. I mean, why was that something that felt really rich for you to explore and, and then to play in this character?
5: Oh, you know, there's a thing I think about. Um, <laughs> my my thought process goes to, you know, M- Michael Jackson and Thriller, right? Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. one of the greatest selling albums of all time. But what's interesting about that is every album after that could be deemed a failure. Because
2: mm-hmm. it's not Thriller. Exactly. Yeah.
5: So it's almost like he's punished for making one of the greatest albums ever mm-hmm. because he can't do it again. And so it's a very odd thing. And that we as society, we want to see greatness. But what happens is, is what happens to that person who's achieved that level of greatness is, are they supposed to go away and never do anything else again because Mm -hmm. they can't beat that or, or match it? Or should they never try to beat that? and go do something completely different because they've done that already. But then sometimes audiences, of course, want them to continue to, continue to do the same thing. And so it leaves that person a sort of weird limbo of like, should I try to beat what I did before or should I do nothing at all? Or I guess it's just to sit here and not do anything. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. you don't. So I think for me, it's about not repeating myself. So there's never any competition with anything. Like I can't make Thanksgiving again. Mm-hmm. I can't, I don't want to make Queen and Slim again. I don't want to do the shy again. Um, I can't duplicate ready player one. There are things that people may like that I've done, but I've done that. And now it's about for me, it's about me growing as a person and stretching as an artist. And this season of master None was exciting and interesting because I'd never done that before. I'd never mm-hmm. been, never on the call sheet. I'd never been that vulnerable on screen. Um, and also I never written anything that vulnerable or that, Uh, that emotional before, you know, and doing it with a Z's where I felt very comfortable. So I'm never really trying to top myself because I think that's a fool's errand. I think I'm really trying to surprise myself and scare myself. That's what I think will keep me growing and will make me an artist that um, will have longevity, I hope. So assuming that you
2: do at some point have the moments of self-doubt that Denise does, because I think, you know, we're all people on some level, like what, what do you walk your, what do you do to walk yourself out of that? Like, what is the thing that makes you say, I want to scare myself, but I know that that will be successful and not, I want to scare myself. Oh God, no one's ever going to want to buy it. That's that's the end of my career, which I think everyone Uh, has at some
5: point. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's really scary to put things out now, you know, regardless of where you are as an artist or levels of success, it's scary to put work out because, of the audience you're speaking to you know they they're not some passive audience yeah. they're not going to just say sure we'll take that phones have turned into microphones and so people have opinions and yeah, they'll listen to what a critic has to say, but their opinion is more interesting than the person who's writing. You know, no shade in a variety article. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Their their opinion is, is just as significant. And so, and for me, I respect everyone's opinion, even if I don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing: is when you put something out, it's about waiting to hear the you know from the jury. That's that's sort of what happens. And so, and and that can also be dangerous because then if you're If you're trying to to make a a group of people happy, then the art sometimes can suffer. Mm -hmm. So for me, I I respect the relationship between artists and audience. It's a very important one. But artists and audience are very rarely on the same page. And that's okay Uh, because the art will always be there. And so for me, it's important that I make something that I can stand by and that I hope will stand the test of time, not something that will just be popular right now. Because those things sometimes often be are often get forgotten yeah. over the year. But something that that causes a conversation and sort of everyone isn't on the same page about, I like to see those things age over time and then go back and revisit it a few years later and see where we sit then. Because oftentimes it's easy to judge art based on what's happening in the world, but mm-hmm. the world is always changing. The art doesn't. And so the art is a bit of a time capsule for us. And uh, and that's sort of what I really want to do is create these time capsules that people can look back at and go, huh, so it, it took until this time to tell this story. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the beginning. And then all these other stories followed. Yeah, That that to me is the mission. And, and again, like, but this isn't something that people would say, oh yeah, go tell a black lesbian love story. I don't know if the audience is necessarily asking for that, but we we didn't ask. We said, hey, we're going to do this and we hope people enjoy it. And that's really yeah. all you can hope for.
2: Um, Looking back again at the story you did in your conversation with Jacqueline Woodson, you were kind of talking about being part of a moment of, you know, people like paying attention to elevating black talent, like, you know, opening the door to voices overall. But I think both of you are maybe a little skeptical being like, we've seen things like this before. We think things are changing for good and aren't necessarily. Three years later, it does seem like a lot of things have changed for good. Are you still hanging on to some of that skepticism? Like, what's the what does it feel like now in terms of how things are opening up?
5: Uh, look, I, I, I'm speaking from a very privileged place, so I can't be too skeptical. And I'm definitely an optimist at the end of the day. But there's still a lot of it, it's, it's, Look, everybody says there's a lot of work to be done. That's true. But the truth is, there's some systemic work that still needs to be done in our country and also in our industry. And um, I always, I've always been a big believer that our industry is a direct reflection of our society. Yeah. And society still has a lot of work to do in terms of leveling the playing field, uh, breaking down old systems that aren't working and building new ones. We still haven't figured that out in our society. We have not figured that out yet in our industry. Um, Because the truth is, there's still three major studios and they're all run by people that are white cisgendered men. And so until we change that, and again, but also too, there's a, there's an honesty in that just because you put a person of color or doesn't mean that everything changes as well, because we're not all a monolith, (laughs) but But ultimately, the truth is, we still need more diversity in um, some of these top positions and inclusivity. And so I think until we get there, we still are, you know, working at a deficit. And look, it's always nice when something like Master of None comes along or an Atlanta or an Insecure or Dear White People or I May Destroy You. But the truth is and the reason why a lot of our work is so scrutinized is because compared to the amount of channels and streaming services and (laughs) content, we still only make up a drop in the bucket. Even though we have a lot of stuff now, it still, it doesn't, it doesn't match up with our white counterparts at all. And so, you know, and also as audiences, because we don't see ourselves as much, when we do have an artist that puts some stuff out, we're going to critique it. We're going to look at it. We're going to pick it apart. Um, You know, but white art doesn't get picked apart that way, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like, so, um, but my hope is the more stories we tell, the more we can be open about the work that, that particularly black and brown artists are putting out because right now there's still so much pressure. Anytime we put something out, it has to be pitch perfect. If it's, if it's slightly wrong, if it gets this not right, then you're going to get dragged. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, so that's that's another thing, too, that this new generation has to deal with, you know, before, you know, you see what the critics had to say. If people watch it. Cool. But now where was everybody Right. Look, after they put something out. They go to Twitter. What, yeah. what are folks saying?
2: Yeah. It sounds like you've kind of made peace with like if you know if you're going to be the visible person, and people are going to like critique your stuff that like you can deal with that. But maybe you want it to be easier for the make things easier for the people who come after you, like you were saying about the next generation and how what you didn't.
5: <laughs> I want it to be easier for folks to come after. Yeah, but it's like I get it. I'm a one. I I don't know a lot of other folks that are that look like me. They're doing what I'm doing. You know what I'm saying? But but I do know that there is a lot more of me out there in the world that have stories that they want to tell. And I think a, my hope is to be able to if if, if they so choose we love to help them tell their stories you know and we want to be a a, a door stop like <laughs> to hold the door open mm, mm-hmm. to come walk in you know that's all we really want to be in the long run even if we aren't appreciated for it now i hope that 10 20 years from now hopefully someone will say oh she opened the door so that others could walk through and um and i took some hits doing it but so be it they, these are welcome bruises because i know that ultimately It's important, Um, and I know that ultimately there's a lot more stories that need to be told, and I can't wait to see them.
2: That does it for this week's show. Uh, Next week, we'll have another Oscar flashback, so please prepare. Uh, Returning special guest Mike Hogan, many of you have asked, he is still alive and with us, and is coming back to talk about All About Eve and that is going to be a really fun conversation so go ahead and re-watch it along with the rest of us um, in the meantime you can find us at VanityFair.com you can find a lot of Mare of Easttown coverage from the heroic Joanna and Richard you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen and on our own I am at Katie Rich and Joanna Joe wrote this and Richard Laws. and Hillary Illibuster you can also sign up to receive texts from us and text back to us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7035. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the first film on the Little Gold Men production slate goes to Hillary Busis.
0: An all-horse production of Dreamgirls.
3: I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie, Challengers. It starts in Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to?
2: Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two.
0: Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker.
3: New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.